So yeah, you're, you're really welcome tonight. Um, grab a Bible if you have one with you or on you or on your phone or something like that there. In a moment, not just yet, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25. The words will also appear on the screen. Before we do, Heavenly Father, won't you lead us tonight as we step into your word, as we share stories, as we exegete the text, may we meet with you, may we hear your voice, and may we be transformed in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So I do want to tell a couple of stories tonight. Tonight's sermon is going to be interesting, I hope, for all of you. It's going to inform a lot of you on how you pray, but for a couple of you, and maybe just for two of you, it is going to actually turn your life upside down and transform and change you from this moment going forward. That's what I honestly believe coming in tonight, uh, and that's a pretty big statement to make. I'd love it to be more than that, um, but maybe, maybe just for a few people, this is going to be actually life-changing tonight. a bit of pressure now, as you can imagine. I want to share a couple of stories. Um, back in the autumn, you will know, or many of you will know, I was off in Athens visiting some of our missionaries out there. I was away with a couple of guys from church and just visiting different projects that are working with refugees who are traveling, uh, a lot of them from Iran, some from Turkey, some from other places, Syria, coming into Greece, coming into Athens with the hope of finding not just a better life, but a safer life in uh, Europe. And you'll have all kinds of opinions and ideas about that. But one of the projects we visited was called Pharos, and Pharos was set up to work with, um, with boys, unaccompanied minors, boys under the age of 18 who were traveling as asylum seekers from countries in the Middle East trying to come into Europe, some as young as nine and ten years old. And they estimate at the minute there is 4,500 unaccompanied children. The technical term is minors, but let's call it what it is. It's children on the streets in Athens seeking a better life, seeking a safer life. And we could get into all kinds of implications about that, but the Pharos project was set up to, to provide beds for some of these boys, to provide training opportunities, to, to genuinely change their lives with the word welcome. It was incredible. But I had a conversation just this past week, and I heard that actually there was a lorry that came into Northern Ireland maybe a month ago, maybe a few weeks longer than that, with 20 unaccompanied boys, children in the back of the lorry who have made their way to Northern Ireland seeking a welcome, seeking a safer life, seeking a better life. This isn't something we talk about in Athens. This is something that is happening here in Northern Ireland. Let me tell you another story. My wife, Lara, um, many of you will know her, uh, at least sort of see her in the crowd and point at her. Um, she is training to be a social worker. Before that, she worked as a project worker for a charity called Extern. And 
One of the projects she worked on was called Time Out, and Time Out brought young people who were in care on a three-day residential. And that sounds very glamorous, apart from the fact that it often happened because the young person had nowhere else to go and social services put them into the Time Out program to give them a window of three days to find somewhere to put them. A foster family, a residential unit, something. And without breaking confidence, without mentioning any names, one night, Lara got a phone call from a social worker to say, listen, we've got a young person. This wasn't planned. We've had to take them from their family, from their mum. Can you bring them on a timeout project for three days? And Lara met the social worker in the car park at Cityside. Used to be Yorkgate, downtown. And in the car park, a 10-year-old boy in a pair of pajamas with a black bin bag with a toothbrush and a change of clothes in it and a Scooby-Doo teddy bear under his arm, got out of the back of this stranger's car of a social worker and climbed into the back of my wife's car to go on a timeout project because his mother had passed out with alcoholism and there was literally nobody else to take him or nowhere else for him to go. And social services had three days to find somewhere for this kid to go. That's a couple of years ago. Let me tell you another story. Um, our first house as a married couple was in Knocknagoni Park, which is just that away a little bit. Yeah, somebody's helped me out there. Yeah, the geography. That way a little bit. Uh, and we, we lived in a little terraced house in a row of four terraced uh, houses. And during the summer, so there was other houses behind us, but in front of us was a hedge and a walkway. And during the summer... Some of the men from the estate would congregate on one of the corners. So the four houses would congregate on this corner here. And they would normally have a case of tenants' beer. Maybe some drugs they were passing around, standing, and that's how they put their evening in. And on this corner, four houses down on this corner, there was nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-old boys from the estate standing who had maybe pinched a can of beer out of the fridge, had maybe pinched a couple of cigarettes out of mom's purse when she wasn't looking. And they were standing here, and their only ambition in life was to get from that corner to that corner. That's two miles from here. Tonight, what I want to talk about is, is fostering, and what I want to talk about is adoption, and what I want to talk about is welcome. What I want to talk about is the power of the church and the power of family and the power of you and the power of me to rewrite the story of this city for individual boys and girls and children who at the minute have no hope. And so with that in mind, I want to read this story. Some say it's a parable. Some say it's a teaching. We're not quite sure from Matthew chapter 25, from verse 31. Listen now for the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. <clears throat> 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will turn to those on his left. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was ill and in prison. You did not look after me. And they also answered, Lord, wait, When? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or, or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Amen. It's a strange story, isn't it? Does it unsettle you? My goodness, it unsettles me. It's a strange story. It's a strange teaching. It's a strange parable. But it sits within the discourse of Jesus' teaching. And sometimes the context, often the context is key. It's really, really important. And when you read back through in chapter 24 and into chapter 25, what you see in the flow of the text, Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection. And then he talks about being able to interpret the signs of the times, get ready to recognize what's happening in the world and when I'm going to come back. And then he tells a parable, a story about, about ten virgins, and the idea is be ready, be anticipating. Don't be resting on your laurels. And then he goes on in chapter 25 to tell the story of the talents where the master gives his servants different gifts and, but goes away and expects the servants to use the gifts, the talents, the bags of gold as the master would. And then one day the master returns and says, how did you get on doing what I told you to do? And then he tells this story about his return and about judgments and about blessing and eternal life and about punishment and hell and about what he anticipates his followers, his people, Christ followers will be doing. And the thing about this text is it's often read out of context. People often read it and read it the wrong way because it's really easy to read that text out of context and say, well, do you know what? If you help poor people and if you visit those who are in prison and if you give water to someone who's thirsty and if you are good, then you get to go to heaven. 
good people go to heaven. And we see that in our culture today. That's the language, that's the posture, that's the mindset of so many people in our world today. At a funeral, how often do you hear the term, sure, he was a good person? Yeah? Or when we're talking to people, I'll often ask them the question, are you a Christian? And often people will say to me, well, I'm trying to be or I'm doing my best. And that tells me they don't get it at all. They don't understand the gospel at all because they're still trying to be a good person and earn their own salvation. And they haven't realized that the story of the gospel is something completely different that is not about how good we are or how hard we try, but it's about something else entirely. In fact, it's about someone else entirely. You see, the dominant mindset, the dominant philosophy of our age is not actually atheism. There are very few proper atheists. What is much more common is the idea of Gnostic universalism, the idea that that everybody goes to heaven eventually, the idea that good people certainly get to go to heaven, and the idea that heaven is this kind of spiritual place where we might be angels or stars or something but it's totally disconnected from this world. So what you do here doesn't really matter that much. As long as you do some good, you'll be fine. As long as the good that you do outweighs the bad that you do, then probably you'll get to go to heaven and you'll be fine. That's what most people believe. They might not articulate it as crassly as that, but that is what they believe. And quite frankly, guys, that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was 11 years old. I worked for the Presbyterian Church. Some might say that's a bad thing or a good thing. I don't know. But I know my own heart. I know things about me that I'd be terrified for you to know about me. I know what I struggle with. I know my brokenness. I know my selfishness. I know my sin. And and that's only the sin I know. I'm sure there's so much more that I'm not even aware of yet. The thought that, that, that my good had to outweigh my bad for me to get to heaven. I have no chance. And I'm not pointing fingers here, but the idea that your good has to outweigh your bad before you get to go to eternal life, does that fill you with confidence or terror? Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, no matter how much good that you try to do. You see, that idea that good people go to heaven is not the the story of the Bible, so it cannot be what this text is saying. It cannot be that. It simply cannot be that. And it's really important to know what this text is saying, and it's really important to know what the Bible is saying, because Alan Scott, who was a pastor over here, he's now in America, he says, the story that we live in is the story that we live out. And if we don't understand this story, then we're never going to live it out. The story that we live in is the story that we live out. I've come across uh, two, well, there's an author who's written a new book, guy called Pete Hughes. I want to recommend the book. It's fantastic. It's called All Things New. And in the book, he talks about the story of the Bible, and he talks about it using two words, 
decreation and recreation. Decreation, and I don't know if these are real words or not, but the words he uses in the book, and I love making up words, so it makes sense for me. Decreation and recreation. And he tells them on a Venn diagram. I'm going to show you the diagram now. Can we fire it up on the screen? Morris, that's it there. Dead simple. Line going down, line going up. Uh, top of the lines, garden, garden city. Creation story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The garden city, the new Jerusalem, when Jesus returns and makes all things new. The place where there's no more sickness, suffering. And the two lines represent what happens in the middle. Decreation and recreation. It starts in the garden. It starts, the garden's up here on this side. It starts in the garden. It starts in this perfect place that, that God creates called Eden. You can read about it in the start of the Bible. And the two dominant themes in uh, Eden for Adam and Eve, first man, first woman, are presence and partnership. We're told that Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the cool of the day. They conversed with God. They enjoyed God's presence. There was nothing stopping them encountering God. They had access to God's presence in a way that, that, that we just can't even begin to comprehend. It must have been amazing. The, the other theme is partnership, so presence and partnership. They were given a job in the garden. They were told to multiply and increase in number and to spread out and to bring the story and the glory of God all over the earth. That's the message of Genesis 1 and 2. In the garden was presence, in the garden was partnership. But then we move into decreation. We often call it the fall, the time when sin came into the world. And sin came into the world because Adam and Eve stopped trusting that God's plans for them were the best plans. God said, you can do anything in the garden, just don't eat from this tree. And they thought, you know what? I know what's best for me. I feel like I want to eat from that tree. I'm going to trust me and my desires and my plans more than I'm going to trust God's perfect, good plans for my life. And how often do we see that process of decreation playing out in the world today and in our world and in our lives, and in the world out there. Trust was broken. We ceased to trust that what God wanted for us, what God told us is the best way to live, was actually the best way to live for us. Trust was broken. And in the process of decreation, in the process of the fall, what we see is separation from God, and sickness, and sin, and suffering, and death all came into the world. You guys know the story you're tracking with me so far? Say yes, Gareth. You're still with me? Wonderful, fantastic. What does decreation look like in terms of our context today? It looks like almost 33,000 looked after children in Northern Ireland who are in some way tied up in the care system. It looks like a hole in our foster care system that needs to recruit 250 more foster parents or foster families in the next year. That's less than the number of Presbyterian churches there are, by the way. Just thought I'd drop that in. What does decreation look like in our world today? It looks like 31% of young people leaving the care system and becoming adults have no 
qualifications whatsoever, not a single GCSE or diploma. It looks like 35% of 19-year-olds who have left the care system are net, are not in employment, education, or training. 35% of the young people, 19-year-olds, leaving the care system in Northern Ireland are not in any way involved in education, employment, or training. That's what decreation looks like today. And it looks like a million other things in your life and in my life and in the world around us. The thing with the Bible, the thing with this story, is that it is completely impossible for us to rescue ourselves. It is completely impossible for us to pull ourselves out of this mess that the Bible calls sin and step back into a right relationship with God. It is completely impossible. And so the next word I want to put up on the screen is the word rescue. Because throughout the Bible, what we see again and again and again and again is a God who turns his face towards his people and rescues them and redeems them and saves them. And a term and a phrase and an idea that comes up again and again and again is the, the, the word adoption. It is a biblical term, the word adoption. And we see the idea of it again and again and again in the Bible. In, in the book of Exodus, when the, Egyptian, when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and they cry out to God, God hears their cry, and he reaches out to them. He says, you are my firstborn son. And he comes and he rescues them because he loves them and he has made a place for this group of people to be part of God's family, to be part of his family. It's a picture of adoption. We see it right throughout the, the book of it, or the, the story of the Israelites. That this group of people are rebellious and go their own way and don't trust God. And then they cry out to God, whether it's in the judges or whether it's in exile with the prophets. They turn and they cry out to God and God comes and rescues them. And he uses the language of family. And he uses the language of, you are my child, you are my son. Because it's a picture of adoption. God adopts this group of people into his family. And we see it nowhere more clearly than at the cross at the place where, where Jesus, the Son of God, opened his arms and bled and died. We're going to celebrate this in a few minutes at this table. He bled and died for the sins of the world so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be made new, so that you can have eternal life, so that you can be adopted into God's family and become a child of God. Listen, <clears throat> to the words of Galatians chapter 4. This is one of several quotes from the New Testament that talks about adoption, that talks about the cross. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they might receive adoption to sonship. 
Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. God in heaven has looked and saw you and said, I want you to be part of my family. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price so that you can be adopted and forgiven and welcomed into the family of God. He has done everything. See, here's the thing with adoption and the adoption that that God does for us. Three things. Compassion. God looks at you. He looks at me. He sees our sin. He sees our desperate need. He sees that we have no hope of saving ourselves, no matter how good we try to be. And he has compassion on us because he knows that if he doesn't do something, then we are going to spend an eternity in hell. Separated from love, separated from perfection, separated from goodness. He has compassion on us. It is costly to rescue us, to adopt us, cost Jesus his life on the cross. It's an act of compassion. It is desperately costly. Your salvation and mine cost Jesus his life on the cross. But what happens when we say, yes, God, I want to be part of your family. Jesus, I believe in you. We, we have a change in status and we cease to be children of this decreation process moving away from God and we get adopted into God's family and we become heirs with Jesus Christ and we become forgiven and eternal life becomes part of our reality and part of our destiny. We have a change in status, change in identity. And some of you tonight have said yes to Jesus. You have been adopted into God's family. You have become a Christian. Some of you haven't taken that step yet. And at the end of tonight's service, I'm going to give you the opportunity to to pray a prayer that says, I want to be part of God's family. I want to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. But when you become a Christian, when you become a Christ follower, you you cease to be part of a process of decreation and you enter into a process of recreation where we partner with God's Holy Spirit in His process of making all things new. We partner with God's Holy Spirit to release hope in every environment that we're in, to release forgiveness, to release love, to release potential, to release beauty. We partner with God to do the things that Jesus would do on this earth in the knowledge that one day Jesus will return and bring all that work to completion as he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. Maybe a really interesting question just to play with in your own mind. Think about the different parts of your life with your family, in work, with your finances, with your recreation time, with what you consume and how you consume. When you're away from this place, do you feel that you're in a process of decreation, moving away from God, living for yourself? Are you in a process of recreation, partnering with God, releasing hope in each of those different parts of your life and through each of those different parts of your life? 
It's a question to ponder in your quiet times this week. But when you enter into recreation, sanctification, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, when you enter into recreation, those two concepts that were so evident in the garden, do you remember what they were? Partnership and presence. They start to become our reality today. And that's what this text is about. It's about children of God who've been adopted into his family, entering into a process of recreation with the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about feeding the hungry. He talks about visiting the the lonely and welcoming the stranger and clothing the naked and giving water to people who have nothing to drink. He talks about a million different acts of compassion. And when you start to read the Gospels, what, what you realize is he's talking about doing the things that he did when he walked on earth. When you see Jesus in the Gospels, how he fed the hungry, how he gave a drink of water to a woman at a well and shared water with her, how he blessed, how he loved, how he had compassion, how he healed, how he welcomed people whom nobody else welcomed. He's talking about the things that he did. And then you remember the previous story here about the bags of gold, about the talents where where he equips, the master equips his servants, his friends, to do the things that he would do if he was here. And then he steps back, and some of those servants, they, they put the talents to work doing the things the master would do. And, and one of the servants doesn't. He ignores it. He buries it in the ground. Jesus does these things, and then he equips his followers to do these things, rewriting the story releasing hope, releasing life, releasing love in a partnership with him. What better way to release the Father's love into a broken city than becoming father and mother to children who have nobody to call mom and dad? And there's a million ways you could release hope and partner with God to do these things, but But tonight, humor me, what better way to release our Heavenly Father's love than becoming father and mother to children who have nobody to love them? In Balamoni, there were a couple of families who took this really seriously. One was a couple, a middle-aged couple who hadn't been able to conceive and have children of their own. And they were heartbroken about it. And then one day they made this decision. They said, you know, this isn't going to happen the way we dreamed and planned it was going to happen. So we're going to set that dream down. And instead we're going to become father and mother to a child who has nobody to call mom and dad. And so they fostered a wee boy who came from a really difficult, broken background. And they fostered him for two years. And then after two years, they made an application, were able to adopt him. And that wee boy calls them mommy and daddy. It's an incredible story. Incredible story about a couple who who were dealing with disappointment and hurts 
and laid that down at God's feet and took up a partnership mantle and rewrote the story of a kid in care. Another family uh, who had kids, middle-aged couple again, they had three kids of their own. They just loved kids and they said, you know, what could it look like? We couldn't do this all the time, but what could it look like to do respite fostering? To one weekend a month, give, open our home up to a kid who has nobody to call mom and dad. So one weekend a month, they, they bring these two little boys into their home and they love them and they care with them and they treat them like their own. They were with them for Christmas this year as well. It was wonderful. It's called respite fostering. Another friend of mine called Rick, his wife's a special needs teacher, and there was one of the kids in her school who had additional needs who was, um, because of situations and circumstances at home, was going to be taken and put in the care system into a residential unit with other young people with special needs. And they said, what could it look like for us to open our home to that kid one weekend a month? So he has some experience of family. And so they've done that. And that little boy comes and spends three nights at their house once a month. And he loves it and they love it. It's incredibly challenging. But they're partnering with God to rewrite the story for a young person in care. What could that look like for, for a family? For maybe a single mom or a single dad or a family who are struggling for whatever reason, who have never had role models to show them how to plan a budget or to cook meals using fresh food, who have a kid or a couple of kids at home. What could it look like to, for a family in this church to say, you know what, I'm going to, we're going to informally put our arms around this family and adopt them. Or we're going to visit with them and invite them to visit with us and show them how to, to cook meals and just love them. What could that look like? What could it look like to do it for some of the unaccompanied minors, the children who arrived in the back of a lorry in Northern Ireland a month ago? To open your home and to partner with God to rewrite their story. It would take a huge amount of compassion. It would cost you something significant. But what you could end up doing is changing the identity and changing the story of a young person in care. Which sounds remarkably like what Jesus has done for you and for me. And then finally... It's about partnership and it's about presence. As you enter into the story of the vulnerable, as you stand beside those in society who, who feel like they have nothing, as you serve the poor, as you love the least, the lost and the lonely, as you take your eyes off your own plans and turn them to a child who has no one to call mom or dad, and you look into their eyes, maybe, just maybe, you'll see Jesus' eyes looking back at you. Isn't that what the text says? 
in Matthew chapter 25. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you needing someone to care for you? And Jesus says, whenever you did it for the least of one of these sons and daughters of mine, you did it for me. Maybe as you look into that child's eyes, what you'll see looking back at you is Jesus' eyes. And reaching out in love to that young person actually becomes the most profound act of Christian worship that you ever engaged in. There's a church in South Africa that they say that you encounter Jesus through his word and through his sacraments and in the eyes of the poor. And I'm going to ask a really awkward question. This fostering thing isn't for everybody. It's not. It would be naive to say it is. Adopting a child is not for everybody. It's not. But at least for a moment, engage in the conversation. As people who have been adopted into God's family, engage in the conversation. And be honest, how many empty bedrooms do you have in your house? How much free time do you actually have whenever you're really honest about it and disposable income? Because maybe, just maybe, for one or two of you tonight, this is something that God is actually saying. I want you to partner with me to rewrite the story of a young person in care. And littered around the, the church, there's these little cards by a charity called Home for Good, and, and they're all about helping churches to connect with um, adoption agencies and foster placements and social services. And I'd love you just to take one of these. There's more out in the, the vestibule. Take it and pray about it. Maybe all you have to do is pray about it, but maybe for some of you, God is saying to you, whatever you do for the least of one of these children of mine you're doing for me. And he's asking you to partner with him to rewrite the story for a child in care because one day Jesus is going to come back because this story is about a lot of things. But one day Jesus is going to come back and there is going to be a judgment and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats and and, and some people are not going to go to heaven and some people are. And that's the truth of the gospel. But it's not based on the good works that you do. What Jesus is saying in this story is, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you, did you get my mission? Did you hear my voice? Did you know me? Did you give your life to me? And that's the defining factor of whether you go this way or whether you go this way. Let's invite the band up and we're going to pray.
And just take a moment. We're going to move to the table now and celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate this meal where we remember that we are adopted by a God who loved us at great cost to himself. That he's made place for us in his family. That he offers forgiveness and new life. Is that something he's asking you to consider doing? And for some of you tonight, I want to give you the opportunity just to to respond to Jesus and say, I want to be part of your family. I'm not sure I've ever done this properly before. I know I've never asked you into my life before. But tonight, I want to be part of your family. I want to be a Christian. I want to be forgiven. And if that's you, just pray with me now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you see me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive my sin. I turn to you now because I want to be part of your family. Forgive me and fill me with your Holy Spirit and use me to be someone who releases your love and your hope into a broken, messy world. In Jesus' name, amen.